For close to a century, Shaker Square has been a hub of commerce, destination dining, and transportation. But like any 100-year development, it has seen its share of ups and downs, including current concerns about safety, empty storefronts, and the vision for revitalization. With new owners, can they turn that square into a shape that thrives? Welcome to The Sound of Ideas. I'm Ken Schneck, in one last time this week for Jenny Hamill. This morning, we're going to take you on a visit, verbally, over to Shaker Square with the new owners and a current tenant to talk about plans for the future. Later, we'll talk with leaders of two of Ohio's LGBTQ organizations here in the aftermath of HB 68 and how supporting trans Ohioans and their families may look a bit different than it did before. First, the news. It's the Sound of Ideas. I'm Ken Schneck, in one last time this week for Jenny Hamill. Thanks so much for joining us. One of Cleveland's historic landmarks is also the country's second oldest planned shopping center, Shaker Square. It was the first place I went to when I moved to Cleveland 10 years ago. It was built in the late 1920s. It's right where the city of Cleveland and Shaker Heights meet. In recent years, the plaza has faced some instability due to a near foreclosure in 2021, changes in ownership, and a recent uptick in break-ins, causing some concerns about safety. Last year, two nonprofits, Burton Bell and Carr, Burton Bell Carr and Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, took over ownership of the square with the intention not to just rebuild, but to revitalize this iconic place in Cleveland for the community. We'll start today by exploring the history of Shaker Square and talking with the new co-owners about their vision. We'll also hear from a community business leader. Later in the show, we're going to discuss how the passage of House Bill 68 has altered the landscape for those providing care to the trans community here in Ohio. If you'd like to join in on these conversations, if you have any thoughts, please call us. We're at 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903. You can email us. It's soi at ideastream.org or tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. Joining us in the studio to talk about Shaker Square, Tanya Maness. Tanya is the CEO and president of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, a nonprofit community development corporation. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you. And we should here. we should also be transparent that Tanya is a new addition to IdeaStream Public Media's Board of Trustees. Thanks. Thank you. Joy Johnson is the executive director at Burton Bell and Car Development Inc., which is also a nonprofit community development corporation. Thanks for being here, Joy. Thanks for having me. And finally, Courtney Laves Marini is the director of the Cleveland City Dance School located in Shaker Square. Courtney, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, Tanya. Let's dig in. Give us the history of Shaker Square. It was first founded in the 1920s. What happened to it that led to the current state? But give us some history, too. That's a lot. A hundred years. Real quick. Real quick. I have like two minutes. (laughs) Um, But no, I really appreciate you starting there, Ken, because it's so important to appreciate how important uh, this historic shopping center is. As you said, it was the second um, shopping center built in the United States. Uh, it was built by the Van Swearingen's um, when they built the rapid line that connected um, Public Square to uh, Shaker Square and then to Shaker Heights. And oddly, they deeded Shaker Square after building it to the city of Cleveland because they didn't want any commerce in the city of Shaker Heights at the time. Um, it's been a central gathering place for the community since that time. 
It's one of the only real transportation-oriented developments in Cleveland. Really, the only other one is the West Side Market area. Um, so you find that it's this incredible intersection of international students, of um, young professionals. It's a real mixture of backgrounds and socioeconomic levels. And it's one of those rare places, I think, in our country today where people really come together um, and and converse and meet with businesses and each other um, in a way that I think is really healthy for our democracy. So I know I got really deep there. Um, but I think that that's why uh, when uh, Shaker Square did go into foreclosure, in uh, 2020, it was so important to stakeholders, to the city of Cleveland, that uh, the square was put in hands of um, community groups that could think about the long-term future of the square. And so uh, the city's willingness to be the first mortgage holder to ensure that Shaker Square didn't go um, to sheriff sale uh, made sense based on the history of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress working with local um, community development corporations to steward an asset uh, back to revitalization. Not that we want to give any other city shout outs right now, but do we know who the first planned one was? Uh, Kansas City. They're, they're yeah. lovely there yeah. as well. That's <laughs> yes. fine. Yes. That's fine. So, Joy, as, as Tanya talked about, Shaker Heights has this complicated history, these ups and downs. How did that history affect the square given its location um, in these two neighborhoods? So I want to make sure you understand. Shaker Heights has a complicated history. And how did that impact Shaker Square? Hmm. Hadn't thought about it that way. Um, I think that Shaker Heights has historically um, been very intentional about diversity. Yeah. And... Um, the other complicated piece around that neighborhood is that there are parts of the city of Cleveland that are Shaker Heights School District. So um, folks who worked for the city government, and at the time we had the requirement that you still needed to live in the city proper, um, lived right around Shaker Square. So that leaves a legacy of um Former elected officials, very high-powered folks who are now retired, um, but with uh, a lot of institutional knowledge, a lot of mm -hmm. memory, and a lot of time that they now want to dedicate um, to maintaining and improving Shaker Square. Courtney, you've been there for almost a decade. What drew you to Shaker Square? Well, when I moved to Cleveland in the mid-'80s um, to dance here with the original Cleveland Ballet, I loved the area. You could walk around. You could take the rapid downtown. And so when I moved my business in 2008 to Shaker Square, there was a lot of familiarity. It had a lot of that still going on. It has a grocery store, has a coffee shop. It has things for my families to do while their dancers are in class and rehearsals. Uh, plenty of eateries for them as well. And just it's a nice neighborhood feel. It's a great place to be. Everyone's going to want to know, where did you move from? Houston, Texas. A <laughs> little bit of a transition. <laughs> Again, if you have thoughts, call us 866-578-0903 or 216-578-0903. Tanya, other than being a co-owner, what is Cleveland Neighborhood Progress's role and, and how does that affect the square? Oh, yeah. Thanks again for asking that question. So um, our uh, real estate entity, New Village Corporation, is the co-owner with Burton Bell Carr. Um, the reason that we're in this project is we have a history of stepping in when um, a really important asset to the community 
uh, really needs the support to get back on, on its feet. So the original Daves in Ohio City that propelled that um, movement forward, uh, most recently the LaSalle Theater uh, in the Collinwood neighborhood reactivating East 185th, and the building we're actually in, the St. Luke's Hospital, um, is the history of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress. Again, the idea, which is what we're doing here, is acquire to ensure that a really important asset for the community doesn't fall into hands of folks who just can't really put the effort and the investment in. Um, stabilize, which has um, been the work of the last 18 months in investing capital into the square, and then repositioning for the future. And Joy, what is Burton Bell Carr bringing to the mix? Uh, we are bringing that connection to the community, making sure that, that the community has an opportunity to give its input, um, share its voice, and then also keeping the community informed as the project moves along. Is it common for two organizations to work together in this way? And how's that going? <laughs> it's common for us to work together. We work yeah. together a lot. <laughs> yeah. And and really, I mean, I think Joy explained it very well, right? We're uh, a, an intermediary that supports neighborhoods throughout Cleveland. We do real estate work with community development corporations throughout Cleveland. But I think in community development and in certainly in our work, we don't ever do much of anything alone. We are almost always doing it with others, um, you know, trying to ensure that we each are following the our best, um, the, you know, the best work that we can bring. And clearly the, you know, being in the community long term is the role of the local community development corporation. We're the support structure behind them. And you would validate that, Joy? It's going all right? Yeah, it's going well. I always tell folks Tanya's like a big sister. Not to say that one of us is older than the yeah. other. No, no, not at all. Not at all. We'll talk about that That's off the too. air, Joy. Thanks. I own that. That's okay. Courtney, before these two organizations uh, acquired ownership of the square, what was it like for you as a tenant? It was actually great. Um, we interacted with a lot of the other places. Like I said, my families love to... While the dancers are in class and rehearsal, they'll go to Sasa, which is one of the older restaurants at Shaker Square, and have cocktails and some sushi. Some of my families would go to the movies at the same time, and the kids could easily go to any of the restaurants or grab something to eat between classes and rehearsals. Um, it was a nice, it's a nice community. Um, I got to know a lot of the tenants, and I still know many of the tenants one-on-one uh, -on -one as well. Yeah. Doing this work post-pandemic, I would imagine that affects things quite greatly. Mm -hmm. Go for it, Tanya. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's what we constantly say is the businesses at the square, like Cleveland City Dance, like Sasa, like Alana's tailoring and cleaning, uh, you know, they, Edwin's, right? They survived a pandemic and then they survived a two-year foreclosure process. And um, so we owe it to them to rebrand the square, to market their businesses, to make sure that people know that the square is 90% occupied. You know, when people hear foreclosure, mm -hmm. often they think um, something's closed down, you know, if they haven't been to the square in a while. You know, we have this incredible, as Joyce said, community that's in walking distance of the square that see it as their central gathering place. But folks who, you know, are a little bit further away, they didn't know um, that the square was open for business. So beyond the, you know, $5 million of capital repairs we've been putting into the square, the other piece that was so important was to begin to program the square again, to relaunch uh, ShakerSquare.com, uh, to make sure that we were using social media to tell the story of the businesses and putting out newsletters. And I think over the last year, with summer programming, with a great season's greetings um, uh, activity uh, in December, uh, people are starting to realize, wow, there's a lot going on at the square. 
I should, of course, ask the business owner in the room right now, right. how are things post-pandemic? They're, they're good. I mean, we did see it like everybody. We saw a change. Uh, we have the majority of my clientele, my students are children, although we do have an adult uh, class population. Um, we are finding that they want to do things. They want to interact. They want to socialize. Um, this is a safe haven for them. And this is, for many of them, this is their home away from home. Yeah. So it's 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 a good place for them to be and to be together. Nice. Over on line one, we have Vince, a living near Shaker Square. Vince, thanks so much for calling in. Are you there, Vince? Okay. I'm so all right, we're we're gonna uh, we got a sense of what Vince was going to talk to us about, <laughs> and also uh, some folks have emailed in. So let's let's take things a little bit out of order and talk about security mm-hmm. in the area, right? That's that's a concern that folks have uh, about um, break-ins, just general security. I'm I'm kind of looking in the middle of you two, uh, Joy and Tanya, who wants to take like the update on on security yeah, in the area. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to start. Um, so clearly, it is paramount that uh, people feel safe and secure anywhere, right? That's the bottom line of how a place needs to run. Uh, We um, have been very proactive um, in the last year. Um, There has definitely been an uptick in crime across Cleveland, across major cities. And we've been really fortunate to have um, really great support from the 4th District, uh, City of Cleveland, um, and the City of Shaker Heights, who are working together uh, to look at a joint agreement to be able to patrol the square. And they're already cooperating with each other. Um, we implemented uh, security last April at the square, but then we realized that a lot of that was just driving security. So in November, um, we instituted walking patrols, which has been really helpful because they're getting to know the businesses. They're very visible on the square. Um, and where right now the activity that we need on the square isn't there. And I think we have to be really honest about that, right? One of the major capital improvements we did was to um, do a photometric study and light the square much better. All the parking lots have been paved, so uh, the alleyways, everything like that way feels safer. Um, that we do have walking security. There are cameras at the square that are plugged into the city of Cleveland and um, to Moreland Courts. So there are a lot of eyes on the square, but. Ultimately, the way you really um, have a place feel safe, and Joy and I talk about this a lot, is you activate the square. And we're missing a coffee shop, right? The number one request, and I hope everyone on the air is hearing this, right, (laughs) is this is a wonderful community-owned spot. And we have some really great coffee purveyors who are thinking about the square. But we know that energy that Dewey's brought, and before that, Arabica, is what the square needs. Because when a place feels active, when it a place feels like there are a lot of people around. People feel more comfortable and they feel safe. Um, but I, I don't want to, you know, neglect your main question. You know, we did have break-ins over um, Christmas and uh, and then a couple weeks ago. These, you know, these were isolated incidents. It was one or two people who, for whatever reason, kept targeting a handful of businesses at the square. And again, with the cameras and the cooperation between Safe Choice, our property manager in the city of Cleveland, they were picked up very quickly. Yeah. As a, as a business owner in the area, Courtney, can you talk a little bit about perceptions of safety being there? Well, we do have people who have questions when they come in and they see one of our panels in our door was broken um, and they the criminal did not get in. They're just um, making havoc. It's like people who don't have something else to do, people who are unemployed. 
uh, idle hands or the devil's work, so to speak, has, is a saying that people use. That's what people are you know, concerned about how is this going, but they do see the foot patrols. The one thing that, you know, when I first came to Shaker Square in 2008 with the businesses, we had a lot of police presence. You used to have the police who would drive by on a regular basis. You just never knew when they would be there, but they were there. Um, As across the country, we know a lot of the police forces have been diminished. So that's one of the things that hopefully we can also bring together, not just the city of Cleveland, but because we are with Shaker Heights, that they can come together and just give a little bit more of a presence, which is always a deterrent to people who want to make mischief. And and Joy, you spoke earlier about the importance of getting community involved in this realm of safety. Can can you speak more on why that's so critical to ensuring the safety of the area? It's on a few levels, I think. One, when uh, crimes are committed, making sure folks know that we have footage, we're looking for the criminals, uh, you know, report, call the police, see something, say something. So on uh, on a very basic level, the community can be involved in that way. But I think the community can also be involved in rallying around the square, as they have, um, to say that I'm going to continue to patronize businesses here and I'm not going to let... uh, a few bad apples keep me away from an asset in my community. Yes, go for yeah. it. And, you know, one thing that I wanted to um, uh, add is we're establishing a visitor center at the square, uh, which a handful of uh, Joy's teammate, uh, team members will be in, um, as well as uh, there will be plates for our security team, for our property management team, um, you know, for um, the merchants to put information about their businesses, um, but also a place for members of the 4th District to stop. And that'll encourage um, a little more of what Courtney was saying. Um, there's a lot of interest, and in, it's very important to the mayor's team. Uh, this is kind of the entryway to um, uh, Mayor Bibb's Southeast Side initiative. It's critically important that the square is strong. But we also know that... Um, there are a lot of things pulling on our safety forces in Cleveland. And so having a simple place where they can stop, do some paperwork, and be a little bit more present at the square hopefully will help. Again, we're talking about plans for Shaker Square. And we're here with Tanya Maness, the CEO and president of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, Joy Johnson, the executive director at Burton Bell and Carr, and Courtney Laves Marini, the director of the Cleveland City Dance School. I got it in there, Courtney. I heard <laughs> some did. doubt there. Very well. <laughs> Thank you. Let's pivot over to another caller. Demas is calling in. Good morning, Demas. Hi, how you guys doing? Uh, so I live uh, walking distance from Shaker Square, and uh, you know I've frequented. I've lived here uh, for twenty years, and 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 I've seen places come and go, and I enjoy the the square, the restaurants, and so forth. But on the way there, as you're walking from from where I live in Shaker, there's a whole strip that goes from Shaker Boulevard down around the corner on Van Aken. There is there is that part of Shaker Square. And is there is that any plans to do anything with that? Because it, it's kind of it's been blighted for for a, a long time here. And one last thing is like any, anybody who talked about doing anything with RTA, where if you if you're going to Shaker Square, there could be some kind of like just discounted ticket where you're not using the whole RTA. You just can kind of stay in between like a shuttle there on the, with the trains. Demas, you can't see our guests as I can. They are smiling and nodding. Uh, who wants to take the piece about that the strip that Demas was referring to? Tanya, I'll let you take that piece. Sure. Um, so that um, that piece isn't part of our ownership of Shaker Square, but Demas is absolutely right that you know 
it feels and it is part of the square. It is independently owned. There is um, a good deal of activity with um, the housing court right now, the Cleveland Housing Court, to ensure that the building, uh, the non-historic part of that building um, does come down in the next year. And some very active, positive conversations um, with uh, another uh, developer that is really looking at taking over and um, redeveloping that area. Um, It's so important, right? People take their cues from a development perspective from what's happening at the square. And so the 18 months of investment, um, people renewing their leases, people committing to the square has really emboldened and encouraged investment along Van Aken. And I I would agree that is a critical part of our ability to really revitalize the whole area. Joy, you gave Tanya the first one, so you get the second one. Talk about the partnership with the RTA or just the opportunities that having an RTA stop literally in the center of Shaker Square, what does that provide for the area? Well, one of the things we're excited about is that uh, representatives from RTA are on our steering committee as we plan for the future vision of Shaker Square. Um, So... uh, RTA is literally at the table as we talk about what the plans could be. Um, what One of the things that I found in this process is that people are saying, hey, Joy, what are you going to do? Hey, Tanya, what are you going to do? And my answer is always, you don't want just my ideas. Um, <laughs> we don't want just my ideas. We want the community's ideas. And we're not jumping to solutions. Um, we're working with community partners. We're working with uh, professionals, design professionals, retail professionals, community engagement professionals to collectively come up with what the uh, site could look like. So I love that suggestion, Demas. We will definitely uh, keep that in the mix and having RTA in the planning process from the beginning is going to help make sure we take advantage of that. And we did get a call in from Jane. Uh, Jane from Shaker Square called and said, there's a coffee truck on the square now, uh, a woman-owned business, and it's been there since the shop closed. That's yeah. true. Yeah. yeah, she's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a lot of people love to go to Christine. She's very personable. She makes specialty coffee drinks for people. She gets to know people's names. She's very much an asset to the community. And um, so, you know, maybe she's going to open up a coffee shop or help develop a coffee shop there. But yeah, it's been there for quite some time. And we love having her there. We go to her frequently. Although, Courtney, what I heard Tanya say earlier would be a dancing coffee shop. (laughs) Presenting an opportunity well, there. That, yeah, we could do that. Dancers going around the square delivering your coffee like, nice. you know, the girls do on rollerblades to the old-fashioned, you know, diners. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney, wh- what do you need to help your business thrive even more? Um, well, for part of it is making sure that people do f- feel that security coming to the square. They feel secure dropping their children off either at the front or the back parking lot entrances, uh, taking advantage of the rapid to come and come to the studio, which people do sometimes during the nicer, warmer months, um, and taking advantage of the farmer's market at the same time. And also, for me, if I want to build my business a little bit more, uh, is there a way for me to build up my business more square footage-wise? I'm kind of locked in right now at my space. Um, I would love to see if there's a way to create a performance space there. I mean, 
We've got this great movie theater that was subdivided many years ago. Is there a way to make part of it into a performance space? I think that would be great because we're kind of lacking that on the east side of town. Yeah. Tanya, you you mentioned the Van Aken Center. Can you talk about the relationship there? I don't know if it's a sharks versus jets sort of thing or how they can augment each other. Uh, But I I would think that for some folks in thinking about the two, they might think about is that a natural place of friction or is it an opportunity? Yeah. So I think it's an opportunity. It's absolutely a complementary space. As I said, um, you know, you really see – uh, the Van Aken District is a gathering place for uh, a lot of the residents in Shaker Heights. Um, every community wants that walkable gathering space. And uh, what's amazing about the Shaker Square area is you have Larchmere, Shaker Square, and Buckeye. And what we're looking for in the planning and visioning process is how do you really bring vibrancy, like Courtney was talking about, to Shaker Square, to this walkable community. You don't have those kind of assets, this incredible built environment. And as Damus was talking about, there have been conversations for years about trying to facilitate transportation um, and more connections for the broader community, really starting at Public Square Mm -hmm. to Shaker Square to Van Aken. Um, We have these unique assets that really differentiate the community. And one of the main things we'll be doing through this public visioning process through the spring is how do we really activate the the public space to complement what's in the retail, that performing space that Courtney's talking about. It would be great to really provide more partnerships with Atlas, but also what could we do outside? You know, what could we do um, to make sure that at every moment of the day, uh, the square, which was something that um, Van Aken has done very well um, to do as well. Go ahead, Joy. Yeah, Joy. I'm I'm switching gears a bit, but this is just on my mind, and I want to make sure that we say it. Just the opportunity to have the owners of Shaker Square here in studio, that you can call us up and we'll come down here, I think is a privilege that uh, we would have missed had had the city not intervened and provided the money for acquisition so that there could be local ownership. And I know sometimes folks question why Burtonville Car, why Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, um, but the alternative may have been ABC corporation in uh, Texas that would not have come here to have these conversations, to listen to calls from Demas and suggestions. And, you know, whether you like it or not, you know where to find us. You can call me up, cuss me out or give me ideas or whatever. (laughs) But I just think it's so important that um, we recognize the value that we have in this local ownership, that we're accessible, that we're working side by side with the merchants, side by side with uh, institutions, elected officials um, to come up with this plan together because it could have been a very different picture. When folks are, are providing feedback, Joy, that word gentrification just gets thrown out there. Um, and sometimes it gets lobbed in and then as if it's a full sentence. And I'm going to do the same thing. Gentrification. Thoughts? <laughs> So uh, we've done a lot of work with Burton Bell Carr and the community on gentrification. Uh, when we did a neighborhood plan for Buckeye, our We Are Buckeye plan, the community residents came up with an anti-gentrification formula. Let's see if I'm going to remember it. Um, uh, uh, affordable housing plus um, preserving the neighborhood culture plus economic development equals anti-gentrification. I may have the the math wrong a bit, but um, our thoughts are that uh, if you have opportunities for all and if you have housing opportunities for all, economic opportunities for all, and you don't lose the neighborhood culture, then that is a way to prevent gentrification. And so I always use the example, some neighborhoods are redeveloped and they keep 
a certain number of housing units affordable. Um, so I may be able to afford the rent, but nothing in that neighborhood meets my needs. Like there's a spin class and a, you know, uh, clearly I don't exercise, but like if there, <laughs> if there are things that, that don't relate to, you know, the kind of food I shop to buy, if I can't buy my collard greens or, you know, I'm, I'm being a little bit uh, over-exaggerating, but just having affordability does not alone prevent gentrification. Yeah, Tanya. Yeah, and I would just add to that, that's so much of why it's important to have local ownership in this moment, is that we can make the capital improvements for the square, but we can think about this incredible opportunity that we started with in this conversation of this being a mixed-income neighborhood and a cross-cultural neighborhood and one of those rare, authentic places, um, not just in Cleveland, but in our country, where we you know, really need to... Um, uh, ensure that we continue to maintain this real variety of people and cultures. And it's the challenge, right? It's not a, an e-tail, easy retail mix to create, but it's also an incredible opportunity to to be a unique asset for the residents of Cleveland and, and the first suburbs. Yeah. We got an email from Michael. Michael said, we need good signs on the Opportunity Corridor to Shaker Square. It's yes, about one mile and one minute away. <laughs> mm-hmm. Everyone is nodding. Yeah. Well, and I'll just say, like, thank you. Thank you so much for that, because that's something I think, Courtney, you yeah. said yesterday, too. Go ahead. You, well, you we have that. families who don't just come from Cleveland, Shaker Heights, Cleveland Heights, we actually have families who come from Giaga, people who come from Rocky River, Westlake, and I have some dancers who've retired or actually they've moved on and graduated, and one of them's at Harvard University and dancing with the Harvard Company, and she said, gosh, I wish that had been around when I was a student because it made it so much easier to get here. It cuts it down by 10, 15 minutes from where she lived, but also it just makes it so much easier to come to Shaker Square because there's no highway that's right near nearby to it. Um, so that's a great asset, and yes, we need signage so people go, Turn right here, just a mile away. <laughs> yeah. We have Bob calling in from Buckeye Shaker. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning, Joy. <laughs> Good morning, Hi, Bob. Bob. <laughs> you, you know I got to get in on this. Get in um, on it, Bob. Shaker Square, I consider, is a crossroad, a more unique crossroad in the city of Cleveland. But it services a variety of different neighborhoods that have different dynamics going on. You have Chalk, you have Larchman, you have Fairhill, you have Ludlow, you have Buckeye, you have Woodland, you have uh, Larchmere, Shaker, Shaker uh, Boulevard, uh, North Moreland, South Moreland, Griffin. All those have different personalities. How are you dealing? And they're the lifeblood to me of the square. How are you interacting with those neighborhoods? Hmm. Good question, Mr. Render. And I think... It, that's the kind of thing that lays the foundation to prevent gentrification because we have all of these different types of housing stock, all of these different uh, folks from different economic backgrounds. So the neighborhood is kind of built to be diverse. And so I feel like the programming is really what can draw all of those folks together. Um, in addition to having sort of everyday needs like a drugstore, a grocery store, you know, everybody has to eat or get their medicine no matter what their income level. But the programming is really what can draw 
all types of people together, whether it's music, whether it's yoga in the park. Those are the things that we see um, really connecting. Um, and in the planning process, we are intentional about selecting residents from each of those parts of the neighborhood so that they're on the steering committee and, again, that they're there at the beginning of the planning. We're coming to the end of our time together. That's how that's how quick that went. Any last words that we want people to do to get involved? Well, I'd say that, uh, you know, to stay involved with Shaker Square, go to shakersquare.com and sign up for our newsletter. If you want to be involved in programming, if you want to um, support Shaker Square, uh, we'd certainly appreciate that as well. You can make donations at shakersquare.com. But just know that this is a community process and the square is for the community. So we want to hear from you. And what if they want to take a dance class? Please come. Just give me a call. I can give you my phone number if you want, uh, 216-295-2222. And just come out to Shaker Square. Show us the love. We'll show you the love back throughout the entire square and show how vibrant the community is and send the people away who don't belong at Shaker Square. There it is. Thank you to our guest, Tanya Maness, the CEO and president of Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, Joy Johnson, executive director, Burton Bell Car Development, Inc., and Courtney Laves-Marini, director of Cleveland City Dance. Thank you to all three of you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Time for a quick break, but when we come back, a look at how the passage of House Bill 68 is influencing how to support the trans community in Ohio. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Sound of Ideas from Ideastream Public Media. I'm Ken Schneck. In this week for Jenny Hamill, thanks for being with us this hour. Last week, the Ohio legislature overrode Governor Mike DeWine's previous veto of House Bill 68. That bill bans trans minors, transgender minors, from receiving gender-affirming health care and prohibits transgender girls from playing in girls' and women's sports, kindergarten through college. With that veto override, the bill will become law in less than 90 days, right around late April. For Ohio's trans community and their families, that creates uncertainty, and in many cases fear, of how, to access, of how access to care might change here in the state, even as lawsuits against HB 68 loom. The ACLU of Ohio announced this week their plans to challenge the legislation sometime before the law takes effect, just as lawsuits have been filed in other states. But those results in other states have varied with various different timelines, some being overturned, some being upheld, and some in limbo as the courts consider what to do. It is that limbo where Ohio currently sits, with a law slated to go into effect, but again, that lawsuit coming. Somewhere in the middle, Ohioans whose lives would be affected have to figure out what to do. For the remainder of the hour today, we're going to examine that shifting landscape and what it's like to provide resources during a time of uncertainty. And with me for this conversation, Dara Adkinson, the secretary of the board of TransOhio right here in the studio. Good morning, Dara. Good morning. And calling in is Cameron Papera, co-founder and executive director of Colors Plus. Cameron, thanks for being here as well. Cameron, thanks for being here as well. Thank you so much for having me. Now, in full transparency, everyone, in serving as the editor of the Buckeye Flame, Ohio's only LGBTQ plus newsroom, I have spoken often with representatives from Trans Ohio and Colors Plus for stories. And I even did do a two year stint on the board of Colors Plus, though that was years ago, pre the introduction of HB 86. I am done with my disclaimer. But what I would love is if you all would call in for this conversation. A lot to talk about here. 866-578-0903 or 
0903. I think I said HB uh, 86 by accident. It is, of course, HB 68. You can tweet us. We're at Sound of Ideas. You can email us, soi at ideastream.org. Let's just get some quick hits on these two organizations so folks can position how you both are approaching this. Dara, can you give us a little bit about the work that TransOhio does? Yeah, so TransOhio is the only statewide uh, trans-led advocacy org uh, focusing on equity and equality for trans people across the state of all ages. Uh, We do a wide variety of things, ranging from a free legal clinic to an annual symposium. It's the second largest trans healthcare conference in the country. We provide a lot of resources throughout the year for the last 14 years in Ohio, and we're an all-volunteer organization. Uh, In this particular moment in time, we're rising to the moment of what resources people are needing, uh, which is emergency funds, a hotline for support resources, and a Discord server for sharing inter-community communications. We've got hundreds of trans people on that Discord server. We've got trauma-qualified volunteers staffed as often as possible on our hotline. And we've spoken with hundreds of people through our emergency fund right now. And we're getting them hooked up with resources and funds both for access to care and leaving the state if that's what they're choosing to do right now. And Cameron, what about you and the work over at Colors Plus? That, that work is a little bit more localized. Absolutely. We focus on more Northeast Ohio um, in terms of um, in-person programs, but we also offer virtual programs to serve youth throughout Ohio. Our mission is to strengthen LGBTQ plus youth by promoting individual and community wellness. Um, we are. It was already challenging before all of the legislation to make sure that youth had a space that they could be authentically themselves and not have to question whether they were going to be judged. Um, all of our programs are youth-led and family-led. So all of our programs that we have in existence right now are because youth have asked for it or requested it, or families and parents and guardians have asked and requested for it. So we're just here really to make sure that youth can not just survive childhood, but thrive throughout their childhood and make sure that they are reminded of how awesome they really are. Thank you. We know that HB 68 did not happen overnight. Can you, Dara, we'll start with you, pull back the curtain. What kind of preparation did you need to be doing all along the way? Um, Well, I feel like we've been holding the line and trying to prevent something like 68 from happening for years. You know, last year it was the same bill and in a different name, 454. And there's been a national tone of increased legislation targeting the trans community and particularly the healthcare for trans minors in the last five, six years. Um, so we've had time to think about what those kinds of contingencies would look like. We have templates from other states about what resources people would expect when they're in a crisis situation. And that's just it, is the trans community Ohio is feeling trauma and crisis and persecution from the state legislature. And so we've had some some time to think about what those resources would look like. And we're giving people everything that they're they're asking for to the best of our ability. Cameron, what about over at Colors Plus? What did it look like preparing for perhaps a change in services or, or the way that you deliver them? I think it, it increased our reach to other organizations and other um, places that are already doing this wonderful work, like Trans Ohio, Equality Ohio, um, ACLU of Ohio. We have been working, especially with Dara, a lot more um, to make sure that we're preparing as best as possible, interacting and collaborating with LGBT Center, with Kaleidoscope Youth Center. 
um, making sure that we really are trying to make sure that we're extending our reach and giving the support and resources. Um, we're very, very grateful for people like Trans Ohio and Southern Equality and Equality Ohio and ACLU of Ohio so that we can have that expertise where we don't have it at, at um, Colors Plus. So really the biggest change for us is just making sure we're collaborating with people who are experts in this and making sure our families get the resources and support that they need and deserve. We got an email in from Susan. Susan said, as an ally of the LGBTQ community, I am truly dismayed at what is happening in Ohio towards the trans community. And sadly, there is so much hate. I don't see a path for the trans community to have health care unless a lawsuit changes things. So, Dara, obviously, one of the, the biggest pieces of the puzzle is the potential loss of health care. What does that loss look like, even from the, the physical side for people? What are you hearing from folks? Yeah, well, I think from the perspective of speaking specifically to 68 for the health care that's being banned for trans minors, the biggest thing that the legislature fails to understand is most trans minors in Ohio are accessing what are called puberty blockers, which have zero side effects and zero harm and put a pause on puberty while they become comfortable in their skin and their own gender before taking any HRT that has lasting effects. And that's something that's gotten lost and not cared about in all of this conversation is it's literally preventing children from just having having that pause to safely um, consider you know medical best practices what's right for themselves and not all children even want that that's the thing is 68 infringes on mental health services it prevents kids from even having the option to discuss being trans with a mental health provider and that's beyond criminal um, you know, we know what's best practices from national and international actors and in making the legislative decision that children don't have the option to even have those conversations, um, let alone make decisions, but not to have the conversation is abhorrent. And HRT, hormone replacement therapy. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. And, and let's talk about that mental health side a, a bit more uh, and, and get your thoughts on that, Cameron. How do you prepare the youth that you're working with for the mental health uh, pieces of care perhaps not being there after uh, late April when HB 68 goes into effect? No, that's, that's a great question. Um, I, I think before all of this happened, we were like, – our trans and expansive youth. Oh, so we're gonna we're gonna get back to Cameron because we we lost them a bit there. Uh, Dara, let me let me pivot back to you. Let's talk about that emergency yeah. fund first of all. And, and we talked about this a little bit yeah. off the air. There's this perception that it's only for relocation costs. Let's let's talk about the relocation first, yeah. because uh, from from what you uh, have said, close to a hundred families mm -hmm. that we're hearing from. Talk to us about fam families that that might be considering relocating. Yeah. So obviously, I don't think there's any family that we've spoken to that wants to be considering or is actively in the process of relocating out of Ohio. Um, but they feel that that is what's best to do for their children. Um, and they're scared and they're stressed. And the people seeking out our emergency funds and the emergency funds from Southern Equality are just parents who want to support their kids. Um, but they're selling their possessions, they're selling their businesses, they're uprooting their entire lives and their children's lives because they want to do what's best for keeping their family safe and happy. And from all of the parents that I've spoken to in the last couple of weeks, the overwhelming tone for parents that I've worked with testifying at the State House for years now as well 
is the main stress that gives mental health to these kids is the state legislature. It's not the identity of being a transgender or gender nonconforming child. It's the state legislature actively persecuting them that provides them with stress and mental health disarm. Um, but so we're overwhelmingly finding that the resources that these people need are not major. Like there's, you know, obviously moving is deeply expensive. Yeah. Um, but people need help with figuring out where to even go. They want to have a conversation about what that looks like. And so we find, you know, parents have a half dozen cities that a lot of people from Ohio are kind of congregating around um, and getting them connected up with each other um, has been a big part of this process. And it's just bizarre. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm personally neither a therapist or a counselor or anything and just giving people an ear of understanding is something that a lot of these parents need right now because they're being targeted by their government. Well, you know who is a therapist? That would be Cameron, who's <laughs> back true. with us. Cameron, can we we pivot back to you to talk a little bit about preparing people for the mental health effects of, of HB 68 being instituted as law? Absolutely. I think before all this legislation even, our youth were having, our transgender and gender expansive youth already had additional risks of isolation, of um, anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. And this is doing the exact opposite of what our representatives and senators who are for House Bill 68 are wanting to do. They're wanting to give them mental health support in their words. That's what they're wanting to do. But this is actually going against those things. It's because of, like Dara said too, it's not because our youth are, it's not their identity that is causing them anxiety and depression and stress. And it's, it's the responses from others, from society, the expectation to fall into this norm of what is considered typical or average. And these kids are extraordinary and they deserve all of the same resources and support and the basic health care that is being taken away and that's including mental health care this is putting a huge strain on families on parents on guardians on the youth there's some youth that unfortunately this is this they're not surprised by some of these things they are they're like yeah well it's just another day you know this is what's been happening most of my life and they're numb to it at this point but then there's other youth who are in deep distress and it's it's not right what's happening to be it and that's a, a a kind way of putting it it's not right that we are taking these basic needs away from youth and families and taking those decisions away from the families and from the medical providers that have that expertise and the mental health providers that have that expertise I usually so say what we're doing at go ahead yeah, well, I usually that leads nicely into this. We, we usually save this question for the end, but I want to make sure to get to it right now. Uh, just as Jonathan emailed us, what can allies do to help? So, Cameron, why, why don't we start with you for folks who are listening in and thinking, OK, this is a this is a changing landscape. Maybe the ask looks a little different than it did before HB 68. Yeah, no, I think I think that it's louder now. It might be very similar, similar asks, sharing those resources with people donating to those amazing emergency funds like Trans Ohio and Southern Equality are doing, um, sharing those resources with others, volunteering for um, the warm line if you have a mental health background or have time in, to get trained to help with that warm line, coming to the space and get, like getting background checks, being 
um, doing it in a way that is authentic to you, not trying to be out and loud and proud if that's not who you are, but sharing those resources, it takes a second. And being there and showing up and being an ally is going to really, we can't get through this without our allies and advocates. So showing up, if you don't have a lot of finances, sharing. Dara, what can folks do? Um, I mean, I'll second everything that Cameron just said, and I'll add to that. You know, we're talking today specifically about 68 and ban on youth health care, but we do have a number of proposed rules coming up for the comment period ending on the 5th for the Ohio Department of Health that would infringe on health care for transgender adults across the state. And we have all the resources for how people can comment on those on our website and link through the ACLU and strongly encourage people anyone and everyone to submit comments on those. Uh, for the ones for the Ohio Board of Mental Health Services, there were over 6,800 uh, 6, pages of comments submitted, um, which, of course, we don't expect them to have read just yet. The comment period for that ended about a week and a half ago. Um, but for the Ohio Department of Health, we really need as many people as possible to voice their disdain for the government interceding in that board's authority. <laughs> yeah. And we have Charles writing in seconding that. Charles wrote, we need to engage people who have been scared out of their wits by political media. Visibility, education, and a willingness to openly talk to opponents is our best hope for change. I want to talk in some ways about you all. Uh, so many individuals who are uh, working for TransOhio, working on behalf of TransOhio, working at Colors Plus, they're also members of the LGBTQ plus community. I would love to get you both to weigh in on navigating this uncertainty as individuals, even as you're being there for someone else, right? We, we actually talked about this on Monday, talking about innovation and how important it is to do that self-care so you don't burn out. Dara, start us off, talk to us about being in the community and still providing this for others. Well, you know, and Cameron and I were actually talking about this together a little bit last night too, that I think for for those of us providing frontline resources in this particular moment, I personally feel like a like a marathon of adrenaline and numb at the same time. Um, and I don't know how to have any other functioning. You know, it's a I'm either providing emergency resources or I'm being a parent and I'm kind of lacking in other other functions right now because um, there's just so much that needs to be done in this moment. Um, and we have a lot of really awesome volunteers stepping up uh, right now and, you know, the last couple of weeks and the last month um, to, to pitch in in every way possible. And I'm really appreciative for all those folks uh, being having people to be able to delegate things to in this moment is really great. And, um, but. Yeah. And Cameron, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you the final words. Give me just a few seconds, uh, my therapist, from how do we avoid burning out doing this work? I think we, we lean on each other. We can't do anything without each other and try not to be an island, even though you know we, we wanna be the best advocates and the best allies that we can. I think we need to make sure that we're still taking that time, whether we need counseling ourselves, whether we need to um, spend time with friends and just vent about all of it, because I fully agree with, with Dara that it is an adrenaline rush and numb at the same time. It's a very interesting space to be, but we're not able to pour from our cup if we if we don't fill ours up. So making sure we have that that time when we're able to, even if it's a few minutes, to just that we're taking care of ourselves and and our families, and um, making sure that we can we can continue to give those services for other people. Dara Atkinson from Trans Ohio, Cameron Papera from Colors Plus. Thank you both for your time today. 
to get the last word on today's topic, send an email to soi at ideastream.org. We're on Twitter, now X, at Sound of Ideas. And I've had a blast hanging out with you all this week. Dr. Ken Schneck right there on Twitter. If you missed any portion of this program, check us out online on our website or listen to the Sound of Ideas podcast. You can also hear a rebroadcast tonight at 9 on 89.7 WKSU. Again, I'm Ken Schneck. Jenny Hamill returns to the host chair on Monday. It has been a joy getting to spend this week with you all, and I'll talk with you again soon.